0: This is the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode two, Give Peace a Chance. Hey everybody, thanks for joining me. In case you are joining us for the first time, this is a podcast that focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida in both state and federal courts. Each week we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. My guest this week is an irresistible force in Florida's appellate world, Nick Shanine. Nick is a principal in the Shanin Law Firm in Orlando and a board-certified appellate lawyer. Nick is currently the chair-elect of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section, and he's been a leader in the state and local bar associations for his entire career. It's hard to miss Nick anytime he's in a room. He's outspoken, he's passionate, and he's involved in everything. My interview with Nick is coming up next. Nick Shanine, thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Nick, we go uh, way back, right? We started the first year of law school together and have spent a couple of years working together on the Florida bar. Um, I'm glad our paths recrossed to give us an opportunity to work together on so many things. Here, here! Uh, from from the
1: age when Nirvana was still uh, walking the earth and doing their things in the early '90s to uh, to here in the 2018 era, it is a truth true story about our reconvergence. And I'm happy to be able to to talk with you on all things appellate and mediation.
0: Well, and that's sort of the purpose of the podcast. Over the course of a few weeks, we'll talk about a lot of different things with different people. Now. You are a board-certified appellate lawyer, and you practice in your own law firm with your wife, Carol. What would you say are your primary areas of appellate practice? Well, uh,
1: I am a uh, – for being a specialist, which any board-certified specialist is, I am remarkably a generalist. Uh, I uh, run the gamut of civil-type appeals, so they can be commercial, construction, uh They can be family law appeals with uh the fund that is domestic issues uh personal injury appeals uh first amendment stuff, and government or administrative uh, matters so uh pretty much anything that can be appealed uh I can and will look into or assist someone uh, but the uh the exception to all of that is I let the criminal appellate practitioners. Uh, have that side of the spectrum all to themselves. Uh, that is a uh, a whole different ball of wax that uh, I, I find fascinating, but have not uh, decided to adventure into myself.
0: And I guess that's the beauty of having your own shop, right, is you get to do the type of work that you want to do.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, that if a case interests me, even if it's not something that I've, uh, focused on before then, uh, especially if there's a trial lawyer who does know it, but doesn't feel comfortable, comfortable with the appellate alligators that are known to, uh, you know, roam the swamps here. Uh, I can, I can team up with that person and off we go. And, and, you know, a solo, solo type shop gives, gives a little bit of flexibility on that.
0: Is there something in particular that you love about being an appellate lawyer?
1: I I do really appreciate the camaraderie that the appellate practitioners have with one another. Uh, that almost without exception, the appellate fishbowl is uh, a, a friendlier fish. Uh, that that uh, we we will always work with each other in ways that uh, trial lawyers seem is sometimes to to find a way to accomplish and sometimes not. Um, whereas with, with appellate lawyers, it's, it's virtually always, um, just had a, a wonderful oral argument, uh, yesterday in, uh, the DCA nearest to the second district court of appeal. And I'd never gotten a chance to meet my opposing counsel until the oral argument. And, uh, you know, both during the, the appeal, but at the end of the oral argument, uh, it's not just simply shaking hands, but we went outside, uh, had a nice conversation, uh, and uh, definitely were able to truly wish each other well and look forward to future adventures. Uh, and and that's the kind of kind of practice that appellate law is. So if there's any one thing I, I appreciate most about appellate practice, it's my fellow appellate practitioners.
0: It's funny. When I saw that you had posted on social media that you were at the 2nd DCA, I tuned in to the live streaming uh, oral arguments, and I, I missed your argument, but I saw – uh, some of our friends arguing. So it's one of the things not everybody knows about the 2nd District is they do stream oral arguments live on the web. So anytime there's something of interest, it's very easy to tune in and watch yeah, it. It's true. And uh, the the district court closer to me, the 5th, not only
1: uh, streams live, but then they archive it for re- review all, often within 24 hours of when the oral argument was. So, uh, so if you miss, if you miss me, but I'm at the fifth and just wait a day and you can see me on TV later, you can Tivo it.
0: Yeah. The, the second does that as well. It's uh, okay. it's a very, very cool technological advancement uh, for the courts. Indeed. Now, Nick, I, I know that you're also an appellate mediator, Mediation in the circuit court has been a thing since since we were in law school and and got out of law school. But mediation is is a newer approach in the appellate courts. When did being an appellate mediator really become a
1: thing? All right. Well, it, it's it's an interesting story, as you point out. Florida was really one of the original states on mediation. Uh, Florida seized upon it. Uh, you know, I think in the eighties and decided, hey, this mediation thing works where if two parties who aren't able to communicate with each other well are forced into a room with a neutral facilitator who can help bridge that communication gap, who can help uh, each party understand what's happening with the other party and can can help work between the parties to see if there is some middle ground or sometimes some alternative ground that might not necessarily be in the middle of where they were, but another route, uh, that might reach a settlement that, uh, that those cases tended to settle. And, uh, it was so successful that the courts, uh, not only adopted programs for mediation, but often made it mandatory for, for civil practitioners to mediate their case. And that moved into domestic relations courts as well. Um, But it it, it definitely was unique to circuit court for the longest time. Uh, There were in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, a couple of programs, uh, first one by the uh, uh, fourth district court of appeal that tried to start a mediation program, but uh, theirs was a internal program only. So they had, you came to the court. You used their uh, persons as mediators and uh, that – because it wasn't very flexible and uh, those mediators weren't people who had any level of familiarity with any of the attorneys, uh, it tended not to work very well. Um, the first district court of appeal had uh, a, a similar setup uh, for a while, uh, but in both instances, the, the programs ultimately – Uh, were disbanded because they weren't receiving, uh, you know, any level of success uh, with resolving the cases and the costs of the program were relatively high because in both instances, the courts paid for those mediators. Uh, Along comes the fifth district court of appeal. And this is also going to be at mid uh, 2000, I think around 2006, I could be, could be wrong in that, but I think around 2006 um, where they they wanted to do the program, but it was uh, Judge William Palmer, uh, Bill Palmer, who uh, helped to really get this, this going. And he had been a mediator uh, also before he became a judge. So he knew the value of a party-selected mediator and how that method tended to work better. So his idea, uh, which the Fifth District Court of Appeal adopted, was – to create a program where it would work just like it did in circuit court, where the parties would agree upon a mediator they could do the mediation anywhere they wanted, actually anywhere they wanted except for the courthouse uh, like circuit court mediations they they, they didn't want to uh, to have the cost of of the mediators or the cost of ha- of hosting the mediations. Uh, the parties would, would take care of that, but in exchange for that, the parties had the flexibility to choose whomever they wanted as a mediator and to do the mediation wherever they wanted. Um, and with appellate law, that wherever they want is actually really important. Uh, as we were just discussing, the, I've been in the second and, and all of the other districts too, but uh, I'll go all all sorts of places for for an Appeal, as will you or or any of our other fellow appellate practitioners, um, and that means that, unlike trial uh, law, where where frequently you are in your home circuit, uh, that's where you uh, will have the largest majority of your cases if, if you're a trial lawyer. Whereas, uh, as an appellate practitioner, our practice is almost, you know, exclusively statewide uh, because. With very few exceptions, there's no particular reason why an appellate practitioner needs to uh, focus on only one district court of appeal. Um, So as a result, uh, people would have to all travel great distances to wherever the appellate courthouse had to be in the other programs, whereas in the fifth, if I'm in Orlando and you're in Tampa and we've both gotten the appeal in the first district court of appeal in Tallahassee, we can agree to mediate it, say, in Lakeland. Uh, Right it between us or at my office or your office or anywhere else that we wanted to. Uh, And that that seemingly small change made a big difference. Uh, The Fifth District Court of Appeal found immediate success with the program uh, where as much as a third of the cases that were referred to mediation would disappear and – uh, while a third doesn't sound like a, 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 a great number in as much as it means more often than not, it didn't succeed. Uh, but when you look at it more like a batting average, if you've got a 333 batting average, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you might be headed the <laughs> You're holiday. doing all right. Exactly. Um, and, and so any court that gets to lose a third of its cases, uh, have them disappear where they can focus on the other two thirds, that, that's a win.
0: So now, in the fifth dCA program, how do they decide what cases are referred to mediation okay so uh,
1: and, and I'm still talking fifth here, but at, later in the podcast we'll we'll talk about the the, the, the more recent change that makes this uh, where it doesn't necessarily have to be the fifth dCA but the, so the fifth program um it involved the parties would be sent a questionnaire, and that questionnaire would first have some general Questions like, uh, what type of case is it? What type of issues uh, are you talking about? What's your standard of review for those issues? And that's a, that's a wonky question for, for non-practitioners. But standard of review is simply, you know, whether or not it's the type of question that is looked at from a purely legal perspective or whether it's one that will require the context that, that allows a judge more judicial discretion. That sort of thing.
0: i i don 't think you have to worry too much about uh, non appellate practitioners listening to this podcast <laughs> uh, you, 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 you never know I think you, think you never know but, you, you're, you're, but I appreciate you trying to be all inclusive <laughs>
1: once the five star reviews get get buzzed about on on the websites you know and it,
0: uh, the, the people are going going to listen in just just because so. Well, let me ask you one question about that questionnaire because I've had people ask me this. Uh, who sees that questionnaire other than the mediator? Does anybody else see it? Okay, so there's, there's
1: actually two parts to the questionnaire. The first part was the part that I was, I was describing before I, I took myself down a rabbit hole, um, and that was the, uh, the factual information about the appeal. The second part of the questionnaire is the confidential ooh, confidential mediation uh, questionnaire, and that only has one question, and that is, do you believe that the uh, mediation would be appropriate in this type of appeal or some something like that? And there will be two boxes: uh, one box for appropriate, and one box for inappropriate, and uh, and then it says briefly explain why. Um, so that questionnaire does not get sent to the other side. That questionnaire does not get put into the court file. Instead, that questionnaire is only seen by essentially two people, the clerk who is in charge of handling the mediations and the one uh, appellate judge who is on duty that particular week as the appellate mediation uh, judge. Uh, where that that much like there's a motions panel, there would be a judge who was in charge of uh reviewing these mediation forms and helping the to decide, actually not just helping decide, strict straight up deciding, um, which of these cases will be referred to mediation and which won't. So the, the thing that makes this program kind of unique too is that uh you know, circuit court doesn't try to weed out cases for, for mediation. You you've got a circuit court case. Is assuming that the judicial circuit or that judge has a rule that all cases shall be mediated, then all cases shall be mediated. And that's, that's the end of that story. Uh, the, the fifth program, they decided that they wanted to not bother with mediation on cases where it made no sense uh, not to, to have mediation. So they, they had this screening program where the one clerk and the one judge would uh, go through these these uh, questionnaires and decide. The first screening would be done by the clerk, and that would be for whole categories of cases. If either side was pro se, meaning no attorney, they would not do a mediation in that case. If the type of appeal turned out to be non-final or a writ of certiorari or anything unusual that wasn't a standard appeal, they, as a rule, decided those cases weren't going to be automatically referred to mediation. Um, And so then there were other types of cases, say a family law case involving child custody. Um, They generally decided that we're not going to mediate those cases either uh, because there's there's too much volatility with with children issues and we want to move those cases quicker. So if it's a case that needs to move quickly – We're not going to slow it down with a mediation. Uh, But other than those automatic outs, then it was up to the judge to decide whether or not the case should go to a a mediation. And that's where the other questions come in. Uh, The judge might decide, okay, this looks like it's a summary judgment issue with a pure issue of law. And the party is saying that they really want a legal opinion on this important question. Well, okay, we're not gonna mediate that case because they are looking for a legal decision. They're not as worried about the win and the loss on the particular case as they are wanting the opinion. If that's the case, the mediator's never gonna get anywhere because they, they 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 want to play this out. Uh so that would be the role of the judge to help to screen out the ones that, that are not set up well for a, a mediation. But the rest of them would get the referral letter from the from the court saying, yep, you guys are going to take a timeout on the appeal and you're going to mediation.
0: And I'm assuming to encourage the parties to be as forthcoming as possible in this mediation questionnaire, nothing that the parties put in that uh, statement is binding on them, right, as far as issues or standard of review, that sort of thing.
1: Th- that's exactly right. Uh, it is absolutely non-binding. Um, I, I, and I, in my practice, I've never seen anyone, uh, try to use that information in any way in either direction. Um, and, and it wouldn't work if they tried. Uh, but, but I've never, never encountered anyone who's complained, well, you told me it was going to be this issue. And instead your brief was that issue, you know, people change their minds. Uh, and nor have I seen anyone intentionally try to, you know, sh- shade their, actual intention and the reason why is it's not going to do you any good if you claim you're going to go with issue a and you actually go with issue b you know what the other party's going to get your brief and they're going to have plenty of time to review that brief and react to it
0: you're just undermining the 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 voluntariness of the mediation process if you don't participate
1: that that's exactly right which is which is why people don't don't do it They, they people actually do answer these questions correctly and the, uh, with a good faith effort to supply the information the court's looking for, and the court picks the cases to go, and and
0: uh, off we go to a mediation. So you had mentioned the, the part of the beauty of the program is being able to choose your own mediator, and, I, and that does sound great to me. Uh, what happens in situations if the parties get a referral but they don't agree? every so
1: often uh you do you do get the inability to to choose a mediator uh i'll I'll give you a hint that happens more often if the appeal is handled by trial attorneys and not by appellate attorneys um but uh, but if if that happens then the fifth will unsurprisingly say if you can't pick a mediator we will choose one for you um and they have the list of all of the people who are qualified as appellate mediators uh, in the Fifth District Court of Appeals, uh, you know area, uh, and they will simply choose one off of the list and tell you that person is doing it. Um, in that event, then there's a set rate, and the mediator has to agree to do it for the set rate. That sort of thing. Um, so, you know, if you if you're willing to take your pot luck, roll the dice, chance on your mediator, you can actually <laughs> you can get save a, a few
0: dollars by taking the court's choice.
1: You, that's that's exactly right. But much like choosing the house wine, um, you might save a little, but you're likely to to, to not get your choice of of uh, beverages when you when you go. Now, that
0: obviously, race. you are on the approved mediator list. Uh, how does one get on that list?
1: Okay, well, the answer used to be uh, that you had to uh, become a regular mediator, a circuit court mediator, or a family court mediator, for that matter, and then. You had to do a separate eight-hour course with the Fifth District Court of Appeal, and they would actually have uh, a course that they would put together. I got to participate uh, a couple of times as a lecturer slash, you know, uh, host for that sort of thing, and and it, it, it was actually a really good appellate seminar. Um, but uh, funding became an issue for that. And so the fifth has – and this has been several years since that – has has disbanded that and instead allowed the state uh, dispute resolution center, who's the coordinator for all mediators, be you circuit or family or uh, county uh, – there's one other that I'm not thinking of um, – but uh, that they handle it. So they have created a new category. It used to be circuit, family, county. Uh, maybe uh, criminal, I don't know what the, the, the other one is, but um, uh, they now have a another one, an A for appellant. So they handle it. And the same rule that the fifth had is their rule. You have to have eight hours of training. Uh, the difference is that uh, the, the dispute resolution center or DRC uh, requires you to have those eight hours updated every two years. So, uh, as an appellate mediator, I have to keep up my circuit court mediator status and uh, maintain an additional eight hours of uh, CME instead of uh, CLE. It's uh, Certified Mediator mm-hmm. Education. And, um, and so we, 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 I do my 40 hours. Uh, you had to have 40 hours for the circuit, but I have to have 16 every two years for the circuit renewal. And then I have to have a separate eight hours every two years for my appellate. Yeah,
0: that, that was ultimately why I stopped being a, a certified mediator between the CLE requirements for the bar, for board certification, and for mediation, you start to feel like you're spending all your time in CLEs. Yeah,
1: there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And I know you're not alone, my friend, that there, there are a number of individuals who who uh, embark on the, the, the mediator route, but if you're a full-time practitioner and you're, you're keeping up the uh, all of the mediator uh, requirements, it, it is, it is a lot. Um, and I'll, I'll, tell you this, if, if it were only appellate mediations that I was doing, I'm not sure that that would be a, enough business to have me continue with the, uh, the, the CMEs, but between uh, circuit court mediations and appellate mediations that I do, uh, it, it does create enough uh, some work for me to do that it it's it it is something I'm willing to continue to uh, to go
0: through those CME and CLE efforts to uh, to update yeah, it definitely. Now, so appellate lawyers always want to know about briefing schedule, right? So, what happens to the briefing schedule once a case is referred?
1: All right. So, uh, and this, this was actually a subject of debate when the fifth DCA's program, uh, went into rule, uh, codification for statewide use. Uh, and I teased that at the beginning and I'm going to continue to tease it. Uh, but, but right now we'll, we'll, we'll answer the question (laughs) on the table, which is, you know, what, what does the fifth do with this, with this briefing schedule? And the answer is this. They, they knew that they could go one of two ways. We can either. Do the mediation after everyone's briefed everything when everyone knows everything, and that would be a plus, but everyone has spent all of the money on their appellate lawyers to do all these fancy briefs, and now there's no money left to settle the case. Or we can do it at the beginning, and you might not know as much about what the appeal is going to be about, but nobody has sunk a lot of costs in, so you're not already – pot committed. You haven't shoved your, your, your stack of chips into the middle of the table. And now there's no point in settling because you can't, they're all out there. Um, so that, that was, that was the, the either, or that the fifth looked at and they chose, chose the, or they chose to do the option where, uh, it comes at the beginning. And when I say the beginning, it is at the very beginning. So here's the way this works. That referral letter comes from the court. And that referral letter is a a timeout that they 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 put the yeah I'm, I'm showing your your listeners right now the vertical hand <laughs> underneath the horizontal <laughs> hand with the T for the let timeout. the record
0: reflect um,
1: <laughs> let, let the record so reflect so so that's that's what happens A big timeout happens where not only does it freeze the briefing schedule but it also comes in normally just before. Even the, the earliest parts of the other parts of the appeal would have to happen. Your directions to the clerk, your designation to the reporter, uh, these ministerial acts are also frozen in time and it's important that they are because even, even with the cost savings of you're not writing briefs yet, if you went through the costs of ordering the the, uh, the record to be uh, created by the clerk and ordering the transcripts to be prepared. Um, that can be thousands and thousands of dollars too. Uh, so they, they decided if we're going to, if we're going to go with this strategy, let's do it right. And we're going to end it. So, uh, so, so that there are no costs being incurred by these practitioners other than whatever their attorney is charging to uh, prepare for and attend a mediation. So, that is the answer to the question is that it happens at the very beginning and that it stops the clock uh, such that nobody's anything is due until after the mediation. And once once the mediation ends, then if it ends unsuccessfully, uh, they will send a letter out from the court that says, all right, we understand that it ended in an, in an impasse. Uh, uh, the parties are to resume the, their briefing uh, effective the date of this letter. So, uh, so you basically, you restart it all then. Uh, so you lose nothing of your time at all because you went to mediation.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, uh, cost is always a factor, right? Clients uh, are always concerned about those things and rightfully so. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Without a doubt.
1: And I can tell you from a mediator's perspective, uh, it is it is critical that you have the the two levers that are most commonly employed by a mediator in any of the uh, various aspects, be it appellate, circuit, family, uh, whatever, is time and money. That every every moment that you're spending on litigation is time that isn't being used in either helping to raise your kids or build your business. Or do whatever it is that you you would like to do with your life. Um, and money, every moment that you're spending on litigation is spending on litigation. So if if we've already sunk time and money into the appeal, that those levers aren't there for the mediator to press. Uh, he might be able to press on some other other buttons, but uh, the two biggest, easiest, and most important levers.
0: Let me ask you a little bit about that. About leverage that the mediator has, because one of the issues with appellate mediation seems to be motivating the appellee to do something, right? I mean, as appellate advocates, we presumably sure. told our our clients how strongly the odds are in their favor as an appellee, and we can quote different stats depending on the court right. and the year, but I think we say roughly 20% of cases are overturned, of so civil cases are overturned. So an, an appellee going in this process knows the the odds are forever in their favor. Uh, to to quote the Hunger Games, how do you, <laughs> h- how can I as an advocate, and how can you as a mediator help get an appellee moving towards you know some type of mediated resolution? Uh, and 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 without
1: a doubt, that is there. There's a reason to start with why appellate mediations. Are, are happy at a 30% success rate, whereas in circuit mediations, uh, you want your success rate to be, be notably higher than that. Um, knowing who has already won below uh, absolutely does impact the likelihood of, of success on a appellate mediation. So for the first thing we have to do is just be realistic that it, 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 it is sometimes hard to overcome the absolute, the appellate belief that they are going to prevail because, as you stated, that there's an 80% plus chance on straight statistics that they will prevail uh, on the appeal. However, um, the, the, the mediator has several tools to bring the appellee back to the table. Um, and, and the first two of those those are the two tools I talked about, time and money. Yes, it might might be true that you may at the end of the day, get that uh, uh, aff- affirmance, maybe a per curiam affirmed opinion, but what is it going to cost you to get it? How much do you have to spend uh, on your attorney to get that, that affirmance? How much time do you have to spend? What, what's happening in the year or year and a half that you have to wait for that? Uh, you know, so time and money remain viable tools. But, in addition to those, and this is why when you choose an appellate mediator you want you want to use a mediator who actually understands appeals as opposed to um, you know and now I'm going to take another side 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 trip here. Part of the reason I got into mediation at all was you know right as the new uh, fifth district court of appeal appellate mediation venture started, the only mediators that were available were the tried and true exact same mediators that we had all been using for our circuit court cases. And I'd been a circuit court practitioner too. I I did both litigation and appeals at that point. And there were, there were mediators I I absolutely loved who I knew were very good at their craft. Um, And so absolutely when the appeals started to come in and the appellate mediations started to come in, I would choose those same mediators who had signed up and gotten through the fifth program. And I found that that by and large most of them hadn't a clue how to really address the issues in an appellate mediation um that they they didn't understand uh the nuanced issues uh regarding the different types of appeals they didn't uh know how the different standards of review could affect the likelihood of success or 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 lack thereof um they definitely didn't understand uh how the opinion itself could be something that could be a negative even if you win it for certain parties. Um there there were there were lots of things that that they they weren't being able to appropriately communicate to my client or more importantly weren't able to convey when I would try to explain it to them to the other side. Uh so so I decided okay well you know, sometimes if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So that, that, that was, that was when I did it back in 2006. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and become a mediator. Um, and I did it for the exclusive purpose then of, of doing these appellate mediations where I could, I could use my appellate knowledge to help, uh, resolve these types of cases. Um, and, and so back to your original question, that was the side trip, um, that, uh, so, things that the mediator can do to help break the Applee away from their insistence that I've got this at least four-fifths chance of, of prevailing right from the word go is to to discuss the types of cases that go into that statistic. That okay, it's true that a lot of cases, uh, you know, it might be higher than um, eighty are, percent are affirmed, but of those cases, a lot of them are criminal cases. A lot of them are uh are are pro se filing cases. A lot of them are uh, cases that had a full trial and the jury is going to get more discretion than this case, which you know, if, assuming that this is this type of case where it's a summary judgment where it's a pure legal ruling and it's going to have a de novo standard of review. Uh, these are the kind of cases that do have a considerably higher. Uh, chance of reversal. And uh, and so you've got to, you know, the appellate mediator can explain to that party why it is that the the, the level of risk is uh, considerably greater than uh, what the, the simple raw statistics might otherwise show. And,
0: and those are all reasons why it's so important to have an appellate mediator who is an appellate uh, practitioner who understands the the, the differences mm-hmm. in the types of cases that are affirmed and and can sort of put more color to that, you know, that sounds like a great statistic when you hear it cold, but when you really start to consider all the things that go into uh, a reversal as opposed to an affirmance, uh, there's there's still a lot more to think about, a lot for an experienced appellate mediator to work with
1: that that is all exactly right and uh and that's why it is that it is important that these appellate uh, mediators if they're not appellate practitioners at least get this 8 hours of training in every 2 years um where they can they can have these these concepts you know taught to them but if you can have someone who either is or at least has been an appellate practitioner uh, where they really understand and and have uh, swum in this particular fishbowl that's going to be what you'd like to choose to give yourself the highest chance of success. Now you're
0: convincing me that I want to be an appellate mediator again.
1: (laughs) All right. Come, come back into the fold. It's uh, you know, I'll say this, that it is, it is kind of tricky when, when you've got a full-time practice to carve out the time for mediations. Um, But I, uh, I, I proof it can be done. Um, and it's certainly, uh, rewarding to, uh, to get a circumstance where you see two parties who are absolutely positively going to, uh, go to the mattresses. They're, they're gonna go through all the briefing and go to an oral argument and go through all of that. And if, if you can get them to a place where they can avoid all of that and find a resolution now, um, you know, that, that's, that's its own reward, uh, and it's, it's a unique reward, too. It's definitely satisfying, uh, and, and that's yeah, what keeps me doing this.
0: Now, we spent a lot of time talking about the 5th DCA because they are definitely leading the charge, the appellate mediation charge, as it, at least as it relates to Florida state courts. But you have been chomping at the bit here to uh, to talk about some, some statewide changes. Tell me, tell me what's going on.
1: This is me with a big <laughs> smile on my face while you say that. So, yes. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll give one more sideways uh, thing first is in that um, my very first article I ever wrote for the, uh, the record, which is the appellate practice sections uh, in section journal for the Florida Bar, was a fun article titled uh, Rule 9.700, comma, et Sec um comma florida rules of appellate procedure and when i wrote it it was a teaser headline because i knew that uh appellate geeks uh, like you and me who habit the appellate practice section would be glancing through their record and they would see that and they would go what there is no rule 9.700 who's this guy and what's he talking about um and uh that that voice was not any one particular member. It's the <laughs> aggregate of all of the collective. Geeky it sounded a little members. Avenue Q, but um, I liked it. But so Avenue Q, yes. Um. So, <laughs> so the the reason why I'd chosen that title is there was an intentional gap in our rules for the longest time, where Rule Nine Point Six Zero Zero. Would talk about jurisdiction of the lower tribunal, and then Rule nine point eight zero zero is one of the appellate practitioners' favorite of all rules: the Uniform Citation System. Ooh, um, where, where where we get to say blue book, schmoo book. We use this page in the in the rule book. Um, so, but in between, there was absolutely nothing. There was no Rule nine point seven zero zero, and the reason why is that. The analogous numbers in the rules of civil procedure, 1.700, anything that starts with a 1.7 means it's a mediation rule. So all of the rules of civil procedure that pertain to mediation are 1.700 at SEC. So I went with 9.700 at SEC to talk about what could be the idea that we should take the fifth ECA rules and move them out into a statewide uh, idea. And and i will admit i didn't come up with that idea on my own that uh, i had had conversations with then judge bill palmer who had uh had definitely uh, been trying to convince others that this was something that should happen um and uh fortunately uh, his advocacy of uh, uh, eventually worked and the rules were created in 2010 uh that uh that put these rules statewide and so So now every appellate practitioner, no matter which district you're in, has available to them uh, these same opportunities to mediate the case. Uh, The fundamental difference is this. Unlike the fifth, which will automatically consider your case for mediation, everywhere else uh, will simply wait for a party to file a motion to mediate the case.
0: Oh, so that – it It potentially makes appellate mediation available to everybody, but only in situations where both parties are somewhat agreeable that that's that's mostly true and uh and what I mean by
1: mostly is that one there is the availability of any court deciding they want to go robust and do it the the way the fit does it. This rule empowers them to do so uh that the the rule is nine seven zero zero b referral. Which says the court, upon its own motion or upon the motion of a party, may refer a case to mediation. So, if if you know the the second DCA said we, we do want to start doing this, they could they they could they could decide to do it, and this rule gives them that ability to do that. But even without the court doing it, it is possible for a party to ask for a case to be mediated, even without the other side agreeing to it, because um, the rule makes it clear that. Uh, the motion from the party needs to contain a certificate telling us whether or not the other side agrees, objects, or or something else. Um, and so, the fact that they bothered to specify that means that they they have contemplated it doesn't need to be an agreed to motion. Um, now, obviously, if one of two parties objects to it being mediated the odds of a successful mediation.
0: It's not a recipe for success if someone's being dragged there against their will, right? That, that, that is exactly right.
1: But having said that, this is this is a fun statistic from at least the earlier days of, of the fifth district's uh, pilot program. And that is this. So I told you how each party will get a chance to check a box, appropriate and inappropriate. So obviously... Uh, any time where both parties check the appropriate box, then the fifth would 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 stop their review right there and say, all right, you know, if both parties think it's appropriate to send us to a mediation, let's send it to a mediation. Um, but of the cases that settled, they broke it down. The that was the highest category of cases settled was was clearly where both parties checked the box, yes. The second highest category category of cases that settled ironically was where both parties checked the box no where both parties said eh, this case will never settle i'm not i don't want it to go to a mediation if, if both parties agreed it wasn't right for mediation that means these parties are not talking to each other so if you force them into a room and have them actually talk to one another
0: through a skilled mediator well they both have low expectations going in right so <laughs> it seems to work it does it does seem to work and 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 I'm not saying it worked
1: often but it worked enough where where uh it it really did did merit the reason why the judges were reviewing it and why it is that uh just because a party is dragged to a mediation it doesn't want to go to doesn't mean it won't work it just just lowers the the, the potential for it working
0: well that is a very interesting uh, statistic it sounds like the the rules are there, the mechanism is there, that uh, if other courts want to do more with appellate mediation, uh, that the vehicle is there. And, of course, they have the 5th the DCA model uh, to have some data on how these things work. And so it will be interesting to see how this evolves over time. I agreed. That,
1: uh uh, I, I I am hopeful that some other district courts of appeal might adopt a, a fifth district style uh, program. But even without it, I would encourage practitioners everywhere to uh, consider the appellate option. I have I have had other practitioners inside of our particular appellate practice section uh, group who have uh, have used me or others that I know to uh, to to do an appellate mediation. Um, I myself am in the next couple of days filing a motion in the second DCA and agreed to motion to employ an appellate mediation in a case. Um, And uh, I need to select a mediator for that, actually. Uh, But uh, (laughs) but the um, the 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 process does work. And uh, the more the practitioners use it, the more it will grow uh, in the other districts. So absolutely, positively. Uh, remember that the rule exists. And just because you're not in the the fifth doesn't mean that mediation can't be a successful tool for your litigation.
0: And we should just briefly mention that the, the federal 11th circuit also has a mediation program that they have had for quite some time. And interestingly, their program is more like the what you described as sort of the failed programs of other DCAs, right? They have completely internal program with internal mediators. They pay the costs, and it's uh, it's quite different.
1: That that's all correct. The Canard Mediation Center uh, is the Eleventh Circuit's uh, mediation program, and it's been around longer than the Fitz. Uh Their their program has has stood the test of time, and I will say this. Their program doesn't have the same success level that the fifth district's program does, but their program still works at that level. And the reason why I say it works is that when you're the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, now you're talking about a a, a jurisdictional region that covers three states, um, you know, Miami to Montgomery uh, to Macon. Uh, how was that for 3Ms right off the bat, um, that you can – all of these areas are serviced by the same court. So uh, in order to do a mediation there, even if you gave parties the flexibility of meeting where they want, uh, these parties might might not even be in the same state. So uh, what they do is they do a telephonic mediation program. And everyone knows telephonic appearance is not as good as – a live in-person appearance, even though this podcast is working pretty well and we're talking by telephone. That's um, right. So so, so the exceptions exist, but what they do is they, they're they able to use the telephonic program. They've got skilled mediators who are definitely smart, former attorneys, uh, who former appellate attorneys who know what they're talking about. And the thing that makes the program work as well as it can work is that they have a sophisticated telephone bank system where you can have five parties and they can, uh, close two parties in one telephone room and have the other three in another room and then break them off into, you know, more breakout rooms and, and how they can do that on the phone is, it's kind of magic, but, you know, so that program works as well as it can. Um, it's still not, not as good as, as a, a live and in-person mediation like we do here in Florida, but, but it does exist. And, uh, I do encourage anyone in a federal court uh, case to uh, take it seriously and take advantage of that program. And it is, it is free. And of course the other thing that's nice about that is that unlike the fourth and the first DCA, when they tried similar types of programs, um, the 11th circuit court is well-funded. Uh, they don't have to worry about a state budget because they get their, their federal funding. Um, and so they, they can employ this, the resources necessary to have that program actually work. Uh, And and one quick practitioner tip, if you're uh, doing an 11th Circuit mediation, and that's this, that the mediator actually has a secret power. And that is the power to extend the time of your brief. Ah, yes. Indeed. Uh, You know, unlike the fifth program or uh, or actually the whole 9700, which does the same thing, which stops the timing of your brief, the 11th Circuits program does not inherently toll the time for your brief, but because it doesn't, they have empowered the mediator to grant extensions as necessary to allow for the mediation program to run its full course. And And so the, the trick to this though is this, make sure that your first request for an extension goes to the mediator and not to the court. Once the court grants an extension, now the mediator no longer has that power. Um, but as long as, as you've not asked the court for any additional time first, the mediator can extend it ad nauseum, um, which is uh, really ad infinitum is is the, the Latin <laughs> I was going for. Um, the other side might think it's ad nauseum if you're taking too long. But, um but anyhow, it is it is a unique power. Uh, I, as a state court mediator, have no such magic power. Um, I can't I can't guarantee you anything like that. But but I don't need to because the rule already grants that that stay while the appeal, uh, state court appeal is ongoing. Appellate mediation is ongoing.
0: Yeah, I have used that loophole a few times, uh, and it is very nice, especially in the 11th Circuit, which is, uh, it's notoriously a bit harder to get extensions of time uh, up there than it is in the state courts. Absolutely true. You know, my experience with the federal uh, 11th Circuit Mediation Program, I haven't had excellent results, uh, but it is an excellent program. I agree with you that the phone system that they have is integral to being able to do telephonic mediations. That's it's just fantastic. But uh, I, I think the thing about the federal program is because they they provide a mediator, uh, they pay the mediator, and you do it by telephone. It doesn't require any travel by your clients. It's so much less investment of time and money that the fact that it may not be as effective is is easier to take right because you're not investing a lot into the program and, and if it and if it works out uh, and sometimes obviously it does that's fantastic but at least it's not it's not super burdensome you know when you start yeah, weighing exactly. the, when you start weighing the cost versus the benefit it's a little easier to take right it it is it is relatively painless and uh,
1: you know everyone can just do it from their offices and it, you know it, it, it might have a a small percentage chance of working, but even a small percentage is still better than no percentage. And, and if nothing else, it gets the parties communicating, which can, can, can always be good later down the road. So, so yeah, I, I do again, encourage part parties to those mediations to, to try to uh, to put, put real wheels in motion because uh, it's always good to get a resolution, but uh yeah, that that's exactly right. It's it's low risk, low reward and it, it works out though.
0: So Nick, I have a couple here short answer kind of shotgun questions for you. Uh, uh, lightning round. Bring lightning it. round. I'm going to try and ask some of our guests here to see if we can get a little bit um, a little bit of interesting information out of you. Some some controversial maybe in a not so serious way and and some not. So, absolutely. Are you ready? I am ready. Oxford comma, yes or no? Absolutely yes. Of course, and we know that in some cases legally required, right?
1: Uh, uh, it, yeah, the 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 two strippers, comma JFK, comma and Stalin. Um, you know that sentence. <laughs> you look it up, Google it. You'll see. You'll see what I'm talking about. It, the Oxford comma is clearly required after a period, one space or two. Oh, death to monospacers. Two spaces after a period, so saith me. Totally agree. Case names, underlining or italics? Uh, I'm an italics guy. Uh, I get the underlining, but I'm an italics guy.
0: Uh, Me too. I I think there's been some studies that show that underlined text, you know, the the readability is much less. I I don't care for it. I think that's a uh, throwback to manual typewriters only. I agree. Westlaw or Lexus?
1: I I grew up a Westlaw loyalist, um, and I I do enjoy Westlaw. Uh, but I'll admit I I use Lexus in my office, and I've gotten gotten pretty good with it. So I'm I'm gonna let that coin land on its side. <laughs>
0: iPhone or Android?
1: Oh, I, I'm 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 an iPhone loyalist.
0: As it should be. For pleasure reading, paperbacks or Kindle? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a
1: paperback writer, except without the writing part, just the reading. Um, whereas my wife is a, a Kindle-aholic. So, uh, she, she's, she's got her Kindle going and me, I gotta, gotta, gotta have a binding.
0: And let me, this is more a uh, short answer. When it comes to your writing style, do you have a role model? Is there, is there some famous author or person that you feel like you, uh, emulate in your writing style?
1: Oh man, that is a fantastic question to which I have no good answer. Um, that I, I should, I absolutely should, but um, you know, I, I I I do not even remotely qualify to claim the the, the pithiness or the cleverness of the bard. Uh, but I I so enjoy reading Shakespeare plays, and I have found a way to integrate. Uh, a Shakespearean quote into at least four or five briefs. Um, so, if I'm forced to pick an author that I, I, I would, I would claim to emulate and fail miserably in doing so. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go all the way back to to good old Willie. And,
0: and knowing you, you might write a brief in iambic pentameter. <laughs> it, it it could be that I might try to do. <laughs> so, Nick, how can people get a hold of you?
1: Uh, I, I am the cursed and blessed with a unique last name. Uh, it looks like Shannon, but it's pronounced Shanine. Uh, but as a result of uh, my my grandmother misspelling her name, apparently, or or, or communicating on, on a on a travel certificate, uh, it's S-H-A-N-N-I-N. So I'm the only one of those in the state other than my better-than-me partner, uh, my wife. Um, but so the Florida Bar, if you just type in, my last name, you will find me. Um, so www.shaninelaw.com. Uh, my, my phone number, 407-985-2222. Uh, and, uh, and otherwise, you have a Twitter handle. I, I, really, I really don't. Um, I, I should, but I don't. Um, or at least one that I'm going to divulge, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, and then of course you can just go to any Florida bar function anywhere ever and you'll probably
0: find me. uh, I can attest to that. That is probably true. Hey, Nick, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I I hope that I can count on you to come back sometime in the future, maybe during your upcoming uh, term as chair of the appellate practice section, and we'll have more things to talk about.
1: You know what, that would be a a genuine pleasure. And uh, much luck and success with this uh, awesome sounding podcast.
0: Thanks, Nick. All right. Many thanks to Nick for taking time to be a guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. As I tell you every week, please remember that podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. That being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email d d a i k e r at shoemaker.com my contact information is always in the show notes which are available in your podcast player please keep listening and be a part of the show i've got another great guest and another great interview coming up in the next episode and as always thank you for considering this week's issues on appeal